Welcome everyone to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Heidi Rehm, who's someone I've been wanting to have on the podcast for a very long time. As we were talking about before the show, I did my PhD with Matt Hurls at the Sanger Institute working on rare disease and developmental disorders in particular. And we always read all of Heidi's work because she really is one of the top in the field of genome interpretation and, and medical genetics. So that's going to be the topic of today. Just as a little bit of a background, Heidi's a human geneticist and genome medicine researcher in the co-director of the program in medical and population genetics and institute member of the Broad Institute. If you're not familiar with the Broad Institute, it's world leading genomics institute in the Boston area. And she's also the chief genomics officer in the Department of Medicine at Mass General Hospital and is working there to integrate genomics into medical practice with standardized approaches. And if that's not enough, she's also a professor of pathology at Harvard Medical School, faculty member at the Center for Genomic Medicine. So Heidi, thank you so much for taking the time to come to the podcast. It's a true pleasure to join you today. I look forward to our conversation. I'd love to just start, if you could give the audience a quick background on the breadth of your work, ClinGen, GA4GH, Matchmaker Exchange, um, and really all the thread that ties it together of integrating genomics into clinical care. Sure, I'd be happy to. You know, I started out early on doing a, a PhD in, in human genetics and was fascinated by the field, but I really, really appreciated the the human impact, the clinical impact. And so after a short postdoc, I had the opportunity to, to start building a new clinical genetic diagnostic lab. And I took that on and spent 16 years directing the Mass General Brigham Laboratory for Molecular Medicine. But throughout that time period, you know, there was increasing focus from NIH on funding genomic medicine programs and exploring its use in, in, in medical practice, as well as my own self recognizing huge challenges in genetic testing in terms of the need for scalable approaches, need to share data, build resources to support the work that we are all doing in isolation and redundantly and without the sufficient evidence we needed. And so over time, I got more involved in NIH-funded programs, both in demonstrating the utility of, of genomic medicine as well as building genomic resources. And that led me to you know, be part of starting ClinGen and now involved in Nomad as key resources, as well as recognizing we didn't know all of the genes involved in rare disease that we were trying to diagnose in genetic testing. And so building a, you know, a rare disease gene discovery program with Dan MacArthur, you know, it's seven years ago now. And then uh, recognizing that in order for us to share data, we need better standards and getting involved in the Global Alliance to build those standards that we could share data across the globe. And so, you know, all of this really has been a journey in terms of really the end goal of improving our ability to accurately and, and cost-effectively diagnose patients and allow them to get the care and treatment that they need. What's been the biggest surprise to you over the last 10 years, if, if you were to be able to be transported back 10 years ago? What, what's really different now that you would have expected to, to turn out differently? Yeah, you know, when, when earlier on, early on, we were trying to figure out a way for clinical laboratories, which included, you know, a lot of commercial for-profit laboratories to engage in data sharing in a way that would really ease the pain that we were all feeling as sequencing became more robust and we were generating a lot of data and he, feeling this impact. And, 
And, you know, we, a, a small number of us started discussing the ability to really collectively contribute to a knowledge base. And at the time, I, I thought it was a pipe dream. You know, I was willing to dedicate time and energy to it because I, I really felt it was the only path forward. But I, I was, must admit, I was skeptical that we'd be able to convince everybody to join in the fun, as I call it. Not always fun for everyone, but, but now, you know, as I look back, We've come so far and I just every day am amazed at how well the community does in fact work together as a collective community. I was editing a, a, an article for a, a journalist the other day who is characterizing, you know, laboratories and their competitors. And I said, that's the wrong word to use. We're not competitors. We're colleagues. We're collaborators. We, we really have to do this as a collective community because we we won't do it right if we're not. So it's that is I think both the the most satisfying but also unfortunately the most surprising, you know, that we'd actually get as far as we have come. Why why do you think that ended up differently because I remember there was a potential future world where some of the and I won't name names but groups like Myriad Genetics had uh we're going to build a really big database and it was going to be proprietary but for some reason that that was cracked and we got resources like ClinVar and actually the collective data sharing force was stronger than any one database. Why, why do you think the force to share was greater than the force to build proprietary databases rather than the reverse? Right. I think, you know, many of us realized over time that no single entity can has access to the primary evidence to generate the most powerful database. Uh, and then we really couldn't do it without the collective work of the community. And there were, you know, efforts to do it that way where, you know, I remember one laboratory, it wasn't actually Myriad, it was another commercial laboratory that somehow felt that the database needed to be licensable and more reg regulated in order to use it in a clinical context. And they actually um, ended up paying money to a group that had you know, a nascent database and, and thought that that was the route they were going to go. And after a couple of years, abandoned it. And it really became clear that that was not the solution. There's been, you know, approaches early on before we had ClinVar. I had companies approaching me with elaborate models for how this whole ecosystem could work, where every contributor would get paid in small amounts for every piece of data based on who used it and so on. And I said, you know, sounds great, but honestly, that is just way too complex for this to actually work. And you set up a culture where everyone gets expects to get paid for something and it sets up a barrier and we just can't operate that way. We really have to define a pre-competitive data sharing space and then allow the laboratories to compete for, based on services and the added things, turnaround time and, you know, the informativeness of the reports and, and whether they're useful and um, the services they provide in many other ways. There's plenty of opportunity to develop commercial models, you know, to satisfy the bottom line of these businesses, but that we could carve out this pre-competitive data sharing space and that that was really the only way that this was going to work. And ultimately, I think that is true and that's what's happened. But but early on, that that wasn't, you know, everybody's view. Right. And and maybe the realization was also at some point that a rising tide will lift all boats, right? That if, if we can't actually generate the evidence that we can diagnose people effectively at scale, then none of this matters anyways. If we've got a big proprietary database, but we're we've got a 5% diagnostic rate, no one's going to pay for it. But if we share and we can diagnose it 
20, 30%, then actually we've, we've got a market rather than having nothing. I'd, I'd love to actually pick up on that thread maybe of where in the last decade, I think it's fair to say that in almost every major rare disease category, we've come a really long way from low diagnostic rates to significant double digits, but there's still a, a ways to go. What do you see as the bottleneck to get from, you know, in, in the world that I spent many years in developmental disorders, I, I, a large cohort would be lucky to get in the 40 to 50% range of diagnostic yield. How do we get to 70, 80, 90, 100%? Yeah, it's a great question and a, and a question I ask both myself and my colleagues every day. Uh, in fact, I was just running a panel discussion at the Broad yesterday and, and I asked this exact question to, to my colleague, Anna Donaluria, um, on the panel. And, and the question is, you know, how much of this missing diagnostic yield is due to new genes we have not yet discovered that are implicated in disease. And there's fairly good evidence that we are, you know, probably only halfway there for discovering monogenic uh, causes of rare disease. But, but I think there's another component to this, which is even for the genes that we already know are implicated in, in rare disease, what are we missing in terms of pathogenic variation in those genes or around those genes? And there's probably a huge element of our lack of understanding of the regulatory contribution to gene expression and and other controls over those genes and, and their splicing and 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 you know the the sort of regulatory side of it that we don't have the the sophisticated tools to be able to understand and i think the way that we're going to have to tackle this is a, a step beyond where we are now so right now a lot of us um to to find these very rare genetic contribution to disease uh, and the genes involved, we're using matchmaker exchange, where one group puts in a gene candidate, and then another group puts in that same gene candidate, and then you explore how good the phenotype matches. And if it's a match, you start building your evidence in your cohort of, of patients. But it it all on the premise that you've identified a strong candidate to start with. And in many cases, we look across a genome of a patient with a suspected genetic disorder and we can't find a candidate. And I think what we're going to have to do is do a better job of sharing the primary data in large collections. And then for patients with similar phenotypes, be able to use more scalable genomic approaches to look for similarities that our eye can't see in a manual way like we do today, where we focus in on coding regions and de novo variants that are highly suspicious. But you don't have that same sort of ability to zero in manually when you're looking at the non-coding space and and things like that. So I think by bringing that data together, we can use machine learning approaches and burden analyses and and other tools that that can go beyond our cognitive manual focus and be able to bring out these candidates uh, in, in new ways, both for new genes as well as new variation in the genes we know. So do you see that as an extension of the kind of model that Nomad and Exec before it has pioneered, where it's it's primary data called under the same framework? Um, yeah, tell me more about that. What, what do you see as the, the 10-year horizon for that kind of vision? Yeah, it's exactly right. Um, you know, we still aren't, you know, calling genetic data with the same uh, analytical pipelines so that we can ensure that when we do our comparison between cases and controls, that we've controlled for artifacts that are based on the raw data and the algorithms we use to call variation. And so one of the advantages of the approaches that we take when generating the NOMAD database is that we do joint calling 
uh, and QC in the same way across the entire data set. And if your cases and your controls are in that data set, then it allows you to remove some of the artifactual elements that can confound your analyses and your discoveries. Um, and so, you know, in Nomad, we largely remove those uh, cohorts that were, were recruited for the purpose of having rare disease or, you know, severe disease. But we, we in some cases, will include them in the joint called set and then remove them later so that those data sets could actually be used in the discovery purpose, comparing the, the affected individuals to the Nomad data set to control for that those artifacts. That said, we still have challenges because we aren't individually assessing each individual to decide whether they get included or not included in Nomad. We also have lots of biobanks and that you know, recruits from the general population, from healthcare systems. There are individuals affected with rare disease that are getting in that database. And we aren't really collecting actively the cohorts that have rare disease because they don't go in Nomad for the most part. Um, and so we really need to pay more attention to these data sets that are being collected around the world and, you know, include and develop common standards for how you process that data. And efforts are underway right now, for example, through the All of Us research program and the UK Biobank to agree to use common variant calling algorithms and other things. And so as we generate these large cohorts that are well phenotyped, we can start to better do these experiments, controlling for the genetic data, but also having the phenotype there to drive it. But the problem there is, is that rare diseases are so rare that getting enough of them in, in these biobanks is hard. So you also need deliberate recruitment strategies, specifically finding these rare disease patients, and then make sure they get into these call sets um, and can be in, incorporated so that when you're doing your case control, you have enough cases of these very rare diseases, right? So there's challenges all around there, but I think we're, we're gradually heading in the direction. Uh, and I think you made a really good point there. Where I, I'm thinking of this like an iceberg where the if the part that's above the water is what's actually shared at a, at a fundamental level in a resource like Nomad, the iceberg below the surface of biobanks, direct-to-consumer genetics, all sorts of programs that are just not in any way part of these shared resources. Do you have a sense of the scale of the above the water or the below the water? If, if we could, because I was going to ask you a question about increasing the scale of people that we're sequencing, but actually it sounds like what you're saying is we've sequenced enough people and actually maybe the lowest hanging fruit is just getting all of that together so it's not in a hundred different places. Yeah, and, and you're seeing, um, I'm seeing at least more of the, commercial clinical laboratories thinking strategically about how their data can be used um, and in fact trying to consent for data sharing in more deliberate ways that go beyond what is normally put on a requisition form and collected from the patient and really enabling ways to allow that data to be used more broadly than that one you know analysis for the in primary indication for testing from just that one lab. You know, for instance, Invitae is participating in the Gregor Consortium through a collaborative grant with Children's National. Uh, and so they are actively consenting individuals to enter the Gregor Consortium, which is a rare disease NIH-funded study. Uh, so that's one avenue. We've also, you know, engaged with GeneDx around ways to get primary data from several um, healthcare providers that are ordering data or ordering tests from, clinically from GeneDx, and the healthcare providers are actually doing the consenting, including Columbia, Geisinger, 
And, and then GDX is willing to share that data when it's been consented by the healthcare provider and, and developing ways to put that data on a cloud platform and make it easily transferable. So like really developing some infrastructure to make it easier to transfer this data to the owners. I wouldn't call it owners, but those who have permission to use this data based on consent. So you're starting to see models to allow this data be, to be used, whether it's you know facilitated by the clinical lab, facilitated by the healthcare provider and, and other things um, that are gonna have to be in place for us to make use of just an enormous amount of data that's being generated in the clinical arena. Yeah, it, may, it makes sense, absolutely. I was curious whether you're pushing for whole genomes because most of the groups you mentioned, GeneDx and Vitae, I suspect are still doing exomes because at the scale they're going, there's still a little bit of a price difference, but as the whole genome sequencing price continues to drop and evidence builds for non-coding causes, are you pushing you know, the institutes that you're involved with to to make the switch? Or do you feel that the time of the exome is still, uh, we've still got a couple of good years of, of exome sequencing? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and you know, I think on the clinical side where more of the cost is wrapped up in the interpretive side, the regulatory side, you know, you end up in a situation where the, the raw data generation piece of the puzzle is, is a small enough fraction and the stakes are high to really make a diagnosis in an individual in a clinical context that, that I am definitely personally sort of at a point of moving to genomes. They are better for a lot of different variation types and, and, um, and stuff. But, you know, everybody's got to sort of develop their pipeline, figure out how to store this data. It's more costly to store genomes compared to exomes. So there, there are pieces of the puzzle that, that people are gradually sort of moving on. I will say, you know, to date in our rare, rare disease research program, where more of the cost is just due to the raw data generation, we are still using exomes as our primary step. And then for negatives, moving on to genomes. And that is truly just a cost equation for a larger cohort sort of study in rare disease. But, you know, with, with for instance, Illumina's announcement yesterday of, of now the NovaSeq X being $200 for a genome, you know, really the, this, the, the research decision making will probably quickly evolve as well. And we will move probably everything over to genome, even in our research environment. So I think I think we're all headed that way. Many, many certainly clinical labs are already there, but I think the rest of the community will be coming on board. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, and I think in my experience, a lot of the decision-making comes down to exactly what you said, what fraction of the budget for a particular program is the sequencing? Is it is it a small piece of the pie? And also, what are the other uses? So if someone's really narrowly focused on diagnosing as many patients as possible, but not on the diagnostic rate, then actually maybe the, the exome makes sense. I, I wanted to get your thoughts on newborn sequencing. I know you've started to get involved with some of the major programs. There was a big uh, inaugural meeting in, in Boston a week or so ago, and it presents a different set of challenges from diagnosing patients who present with significant symptoms that could point to a rare disease. How do you, how does your mental model for newborn screening different than the one you've developed over the last you know, decades looking at uh, rare disease cases, which are a little bit different? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, and I think I think there's several things to think about in this realm. So, um, you know, as we move towards an era where we don't think about genomic sequencing as a one time to answer one question, but in fact, a resource to use over an individual's lifetime, where you may be evaluating some symptoms in a 
an individual at one point in time, but you also want their pharmacogenomic information. So the moment, you know, physician needs to dose or order a drug, that data is there to, to, to decide what right the right dose and or uh, if there's um, adverse reaction that might be predicted. Uh, that need, data needs to be generated in advance. If, you know, you're thinking about having a family and you want your carrier status for risk of recessive disorders, you know, that's another use that many individuals will encounter at some point in their lifetime. And so it's, at some point you think about all the different things that you want that genome for and you say, well, well, then we should just get it at birth and use it throughout the individual's lifetime. So so that's one of the arguments, I think, for, for newborn sequencing is to um, use it throughout the lifetime. I think that the practical challenges that we think about are a couple fold. One, if you actually want to use that genome in the context of newborn screening, where the idea is detect a disorder that needs immediate treatment and management, like is done with newborn screening today, you've got an incredibly small window to generate that data and analyze it. And and that to, to really get, it can be done quickly. And there's definitely examples from Stephen Kingsmore's lab, you, you and Ashley's lab, that have clearly shown how rapidly you can do this. We can do it. But to do that, you have to put all your resources and everybody's attention to a very small number of cases. It's very difficult to have that kind of rapid turnaround very large-scale setting that really contributes the sufficient interpretation for all things, you know, at a rapid point in time. And so you could argue that maybe instead of newborn sequencing, you sequence in the prenatal period where you have nine-month window. Right. It's a little more stressful because when you, you know, find uncertainty, like what decision-making is done with that, so it raises some more ethical concerns there, but it actually is a longer window to then have the information and be prepared for how you're going to address that patient before they are born. And that is really stress reducing <laughs> for the family to be warned in advance that they are going to have a child with a rare disease. They need to have the physicians on service and ready to go with whatever treatment. And that's a much better way to, to deal with a newborn crisis than the moment that baby comes out <laughs> and has something going on and you don't know what it is and you're waiting for the results. So, so I think there's some logistical challenge as we think about how what is the best time point to generate this data. And it could be argued that it's not at the newborn stage, it's actually before it. Um, but also the question of, you know, are you really going to use that same genome you generate today in, you know, 25 plus years when that individual is ready to consider a family? Is carrier status really useful? Well, it may not be for that individual, but it may be for that family who's going to have a second child, a sibling to that newborn, and they need the carrier status. But then why not sequence the parents' genomes and get the information directly from their genomes? So you start to like sort of have a whole series of questions and struggles as we think about what to do at this point in time where we're trying to manage the parents' genomes, the baby, you know, the timeliness will this data be relevant or we will have, you know, the $10 genome in five years and we, and that's better. And we just generate it again. Right. Those are all the challenges. Yes. Yeah. That the, this the first time I think I've heard the point that you made about sequencing earlier gives you time to make some of those decisions. And, and that definitely resonates me. I, I was also speaking to someone at this conference yesterday, uh, Parker Moss from Genomics England, who made the point about storage that actually if, 99.5% of newborns aren't going to have anything actionable, then you you may just want to get rid of the data 
because storage cost and hanging on to it for 50 years or whatever it may be until it becomes relevant again is going to be less than sequencing it again. It's a, it's a very big paradigm shift, I think, because we've all been living in a world where sequencing is so expensive, relatively speaking, that you wouldn't dream of getting rid of the data because storage costs uh, are dominating. But it seems like we're heading heading towards that world pretty soon. Yeah, absolutely. The the other interesting thing that struck me about newborn screening as well is how how we can effectively consent families because there was an interesting um, example that David Bick from who's the principal clinician on the Genomics England newborn screening program shared, which is if you screen a child and they have um, their homozygous for a BRCA2 variant, they they need a bone marrow transplant. They they likely have Fanconi anemia, but it also means that both parents very likely are carriers for the breast cancer risk gene. So all of a sudden you've got a consent form that says most families find nothing, but there's a number of things that we could find. So you need to be prepared for it. And then all of a sudden you go from most families are going to be fine to now we've got a family that's got not zero, but three potential issues to contend with. How how do you think about informed consent in a in a really complex set of scenarios like that? Yeah, I mean, you know, in in our world of genetics, you know, it is true that most of the information we find are going to be relevant for family members. So you just can't get around the fact that you need to consent and think about the downstream implications of that. You know, and and it's it's an interesting thing because there have been arguments for certain adult onset disorders like breast cancer um, that you sh- should allow the the child to wait until they're of age to make an informed decision if they want to know their risk and things like that. Um, the challenge is those policies and and principles were developed in an era when it was based on knowing your family history and your risk and being already aware that you were 50% at risk for let's say Huntington's disease and then you know in that context you know you're at risk but maybe you want to wait to determine whether you are at you actually have you know the the variant or not in in a, a lot of the cases we are now encountering these individuals aren't actually aware of their risk, either because the family history isn't, you know, as as clear and unappreciated. And so you're not in a situation where this child can just wait till their 18th birthday and then make a decision. They This may be the only opportunity to let them know that they or the, their parent is at risk. And so it's a very different paradigm we live in now in sort of thinking about autonomy to make decisions where you may, this may be your only shot at getting really medically important information to some individual in that family, be it the proband or their family members. And so we have to really think about this differently and be cognizant of what, what information should be shared. At the same time, we struggle. Physicians are sometimes not even ordering genetic testing because of the complexity of the consent process, do they want secondary findings? So there's also, you know, an element of our community, myself included, that sometimes like most of medical practice, we let the physician make a decision in the best interest of the patient as to what information to give back and what is clinically meaningful. And, you know, when does it go too far that we make too many, would you like this? Would you like that? Well, I don't know. I don't understand that. Well, let me give you a 10-hour lecture on what a secondary finding is and what all these diseases are so you can make an informed decision. That is really, really hard to educate, you know, even the physicians, let alone the, the you know, patients around this. And so when do we say, look, we've been trained to do this well. We understand these diseases. We understand their pedotrins. 
We understand our, our patients and what's important to them generally. Let me make this decision. Let me help them better make this decision. And, and that's a tough decision when you remove autonomy and try to make decisions for other people. But there's a practical side of this that we have to think about as well. Yes. And, and I think the human expertise problem is going to hit us very quickly. I mean, it, it already has. So in the uh, was in the room listening to a discussion for one of the big UK programs, Our Future Health, where one of the one of the potential routes was to return APOA, APOE4 status, for example, to participants. And really, it was an exploration of, of should we do this? Could we do this? What are the barriers? And one of the things that very quickly came up is genetic counseling, that if you if if you want to sequence 5 million people and do pre-test and post-test counseling, if you just run the numbers, you, you there's not enough genetic counselors in the world, but there's some interesting, I think there's some interesting technological approaches. And, and I, there's a group out in Canada that recently tested a, a kind of group webinar-based genetic counseling. So you get everybody in the room for an informational session, and then you've got um, you know, the opportunity for more one-to-one sessions. So I, I am optimistic that we can find ways to to scale it, but there's also going to have to be some compromises made, right? That I, I don't think we have enough genetic counselors in the world to have pre- and post-test counseling for everyone that goes through a newborn screening program and do it at the scale that, that we want to do. But then the question becomes is that a must have? And it just means we rate limit the screening or or is there um, a flexibility? That? I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but it's one that I don't have a good answer to. Yeah, it, it, it's a great question in terms of the, the genetic counseling needs of our community. And I, and I do think that we are going to have to you know, continue to evolve some of these more scalable approaches, whether they be group counseling sessions or, you know, there is now use of chat bots where um, an individual can sort of go through a series of explanatory information. And then, you know, some of them are going to be like, yeah, 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 I just want it. You know, don't, don't make me sit here for an hour. And others really want to, you know, dive in and have their questions answered and go through branching logic and say this, that, and the other thing, and may end up with, and okay, now I definitely need to talk to someone because not all of my questions have been answered. But if we can get a, a fairly large fraction of individuals that really know what they want and, you know, are willing to just dive in, that reduces the resources and we can focus them for those individuals that, that really are borderline and aren't sure they want to go down this path and, and we can a- apply the resources appropriately. So I, I think these these more scalable approaches and how we think about things so that we can target the discussions where they're needed and not waste the time of both the, the pro- providers and, and the patients or individuals wanting the testing if they don't need it. How how is polygenic risk scoring moving into your world? Because I think it's probably fair to say five years ago we were really in the rare disease space, really focused on monogenic. Occasionally there was a multi gene quirk where you had two hits that you needed to get, but for the most part it was um, it was monogenic. But there's some really interesting work that's been done recently looking at how polygenic scores can influence penetrance and and complicate the picture. Where Where is that creeping into world? And I imagine it's complicating what you do with ClinGen and, and other resources where uh, it's complicated enough to assign VUSs as pathogenic or, or benign without having this, this background polygenic score to worry about. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And of course, there's lots of different opinions about the utility of polygenic risk scores today and, and their use in medicine. I do think they are improving and increasing in their utility and, and the potential to use them, but more so in a stratification of the patient population 
to direct preventive care, certainly not that useful if I don't think at all useful in a diagnostic realm. Like once you have the complex disorder, whether it's obesity, diabetes, you know, coronary artery disease, you're going to focus on treating that individual. There's occasions when you might take slightly different approaches to manage their disorder based on understanding that the basis for that is more likely genetic as opposed to diet and, and lifestyle. So, you know, there may be some utility even after the individual develops some of the symptoms, but it's largely about stratifying for risk. And as you pointed out, um, some uh, elements of predicting penetrance for monogenic disorders, because we certainly know that the penetrance varies and for many of these genes for adult onset conditions like hereditary breast cancer uh, and other disorders. And if we can give someone a better sense of how high their risk is, it might cause them to make decisions, you know, do I wait to have my breasts removed until after I've breastfed or, you know, or, 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 you know, things like that that are real, real important decisions for a woman to make in that context and others. So, so you can, you know, you can think about the scenarios where getting a better read on your true risk can be helpful. So, um, but, but, but I do think we need to evolve to the point that we are really have a clear decision matrix based on the risk being reported to guide a physician in what they should do and or offer to the patient. Because if you just say, here's your score, it's high or it's not high, uh, and a physician doesn't know what to do with that information, you haven't really helped the system at all. So, you know, we are right now just started actually reporting clinical results of multiple polygenic risk scores for the NIH-funded eMERGE consortium with thousands of individuals being uh, given polygenic risk scores returned in multiple different healthcare systems across the U.S. And so we really hope to learn, you know, some useful things about the practical implementation of PRS in the healthcare setting that hopefully will will guide us and how this information might or might not be useful. Um, but parallel to that, we'll, we do still need to do the studies to look at outcomes after you've stratified and taken different strategies. And some of that data is emerging from some studies, but others, you know, are still awaiting those outcome studies to be implemented. Yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm, uh, I've been following the eMERGE consortium. I think it'll be really interesting to see what you learn there. I have one more question. We're running up against time, um, and it's, it's a little bit of a blue skies question. I wanted to get your thoughts on if you can only choose one, so you can 10x the size of the major resources that we have today, like UK Biobank, Nomad, others, but the, the data that we're collecting is fundamentally the same. Or you can 10x the variety of data sets that we have within those same cohorts. So adding RNA sequencing, proteomics, you get to choose what you're, what you're doing there. You, you can... Um, create stem cell banks. What's the, what, what do you choose in that world? Do we need greater scale of what we already have, or do we need greater variety uh, to better understand the biology? It's a great question. Of course, I want to say we need both, but given that you've posed the question as a choice, <laughs> you can't I, say both. Um, I think I'm going to say more variety of data because, uh, you know, I really feel we are missing fundamental components of how we look at information, particularly outside of the strict coding region. And we're going to need other omic approaches to be able to understand where to look and how to look in those regions. And I think um, that we will continue to discover genes based on low-hanging fruit because there's de novo variants and a constrained gene in the coding sequence. And, and that 
cycle is continues today. But um, but I do think we need to invest some time and energy and resources into more innovative ways to look in the places that we just haven't been good at looking today. Uh, and we're going to need that other those other data types, both proteomic, transcriptomic, and other modalities to really shine our flashlight in the right spot. So that's if I had to pick, I would probably lean towards that. Great, I, I appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate you playing that game, and I completely agree. We we want to do both, but. Um... I, I, I like your perspective there. Um, well, I wanted to just say thank you. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I've, I've been looking forward to doing this for a really long time. Didn't disappoint. This is probably one of the favorite conversations I've ever had. Um, so thank you. And and obviously everybody who's listening will will continue to follow your work. And I know we've made, you, you and your team and the broader community have made a lot of progress in the last um, decade. So looking forward to what's to come next. Well, terrific. I really enjoyed the, the conversation. They were great questions and the key things that we need to think about as a community. So, so thank you for having me on, on this podcast. My pleasure. And thanks everyone for listening. If you enjoyed this episode or any others, we'd really appreciate it if you could share the link with a friend and uh, leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much. And we'll see you next time.